Sheila Dixon, former mayor of Baltimore City, offers her views on how relations can be improved between the Baltimore City Police Department and the community. We have to make sure that our officers understand and realize that they are there to protect and serve. Police officers, when they see another officer doing something, I mean, they too have the responsibility to speak up. And if they do speak up, over time, Sheila says, trust will be restored between the police and the community. Stay tuned for more from Baltimore City Mayor Sheila Dixon. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Sheila Dixon, 48th Mayor of Baltimore City, the former President of the Baltimore City Council, and a former 4th District City Council person. Sheila is also a former International Trade Specialist at the Department of Business and Economic Development for the State of Maryland. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Great. So the first question I'd like to talk to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Well, what I'm currently doing is consultant work with the Maryland Minority Contractors Association, as well as I have some additional clients that I've worked with to help to navigate um, their businesses in Baltimore. Um, through the Maryland Minority Contractors Association, which is one of the oldest associations, actually spearheaded the initiative to introduce legislation at the local level and the state level for minority and women-owned companies to be able to get opportunities for their companies. And so over the last four years, I've been working as their marketing and executive director helping to cultivate those relationships, helping to enhance those businesses, helping to assist those companies with their certifications, and really trying to make an impact to employ people. Employ people, um, develop and expand their businesses, uh, and as well as help in navigating challenges that they face at the state and local level. So uh, on the topic of employing people, uh, I know that you've referred previously um, to unemployment as a public health crisis. And while you were mayor, you took actions to try to address unemployment. And uh, in a camp- recent campaign as well, you began talking about plans to address unemployment. Could you speak about some of those plans and what you were trying to accomplish and how you were hoping to reduce unemployment? Well, first of all, it's it's we need to focus and work on individual skill levels and developing um, training opportunities, but using what's existing to help individuals to develop their abilities to be able to be employable. Secondly, one of the big issues that I focused on was 
how to increase the minimum wage, one, for city workers. And we did come up with a plan, and we identified potential funding to assist, because even city employees, in some cases, um, labor workers and others, aren't even at $15 an hour. Taking that model and then expanding that in the private sector so that individuals could increase um, their opportunities. Um, and last but not least, really getting back into the schools and creating an infrastructure in our schools, starting at er as early as middle school for kids to identify and young people to identify what their abilities and skills are and what could be a good fit for them to potentially either create a, a, a business or to create a career long term. You know, one of the things that's missing that I found, and I can use an example of a young man I met at the high school I attended who graduated and did not um, have a plan when he graduated, and it was just an incident, a uh, coincidence that he and I connected because he had a shirt and tie on. Um, but what I find is that we are focused on helping young people start even earlier on mapping out plans for their lives as well as when ex-offenders are coming out um, from incarceration before they come out. Where, how do we go in and work with them? Because a lot of people walking around and not understanding and knowing what their abilities are and having someone to help them to map out those abilities and plans. So you speak about early planning uh, for life skills and for a life career trajectory. Um, of course, one of the greatest challenges facing Baltimore City are um, its poor public schools, which is how it's been referred to in the local press in Baltimore City. Individuals often will graduate uh, and get good marks simply by turning in homework, if it, even if it's incorrect, or showing up and not being disruptive in class, even if they're not learning anything. Um, and then you also speak about early mapping. So, for instance, in Europe, uh, in Germany, for instance, you may find that uh, many individuals are tracked into certain career tracks early on. So in middle school or high school, they would find, okay, we're going to be college-bound or I'm not going to be college-bound. And, of course, that leads to uh, a professional class or, or a, a blue-collar class, but you would also find that it's it's it, some people will say it goes against the American ethos to track kids, especially when you have an economy that's shifting daily and you have many jobs in our current economy that didn't even exist when people in their 30s and 40s were in middle school. So I'd like to ask, how do you respond to comments that perhaps early mapping is, is uh, of career trajectories is unfair to students who may find their potential uh, blossoms later in life or who wouldn't want choices cut off that early in their school uh, career? Well, first of all, I think um, you provide um, young people and children with a diverse set of abilities and skills and, and opportunities so that, I mean, it's just, I, I use myself as an example. I wanted to be a school teacher because of a uh, negative experience that I had with a teacher in elementary school, and I was determined that I would never allow a child to experience what I went through and that I would only build their self-esteem up and help them to accomplish their dreams and their goals. So 
but as I as life went on, I also got exposed to different arenas when I had the opportunity to travel over to Kenya and set up a small import business with a friend of mine, with some girlfriends of mine, which then expanded my um, vision and, and, and dreams to work internationally. But to continue to build on the education aspect, you know, I realized that when I did get into teaching that I wanted to make changes policy-wise. So, but if you don't start off with any plan, I mean, there are, you know, and, and not knowing what your abilities are and, and that you might not necessarily want to go to college, I go back to this young man. I went to the graduation several years ago at Northwestern. He had on a shirt and tie. He was very polite. The graduation was really off the hook. I was very disappointed because I wasn't used to seeing a graduation a graduation where kids were just screaming and howling and family members. And everybody was excited, but it was not as respectful as I would have wanted. So leaving the school, I saw this young man. I, he had a shirt and tie on. I congratulated him. I asked him what his plans were. He looked at me like, duh, I don't have any plans. It's like, how do you graduate with no plan? I said, what do you like to do? He says, well, I like construction. I like to put up um, sheetrock. I said, you know what? This is your lucky day. Give me your resume. I'll give it to some of my companies. I can't guarantee you anything. But if I can help with an internship, we can see what happens. He looked at me and said, well, I don't have a resume. I said, how do you graduate from high school with no resume, no plan? But he did take the initiative, went back to school the next day. After he went to school the next day, he, he and, and his teacher helped him with a resume. He sent it to me. I sent it to some of the companies I work with and asked them if they were given an interview for potential internship. One of the companies interviewed him and said, hey, I'll give you an internship, but you have to go through Jumpstart. He went through Jumpstart. I went to his graduation. Now, and I'm talking about this young man was not an A student. He had some challenges, lived in Park Heights um, in the community. His mother was drug addictive. He lived with his father. So he had challenges. But he graduated from Jumpstart. He began to apply for jobs with construction companies. He ended up helping to build two of the schools, the new schools with the, um, what is it, Century 21. Um, he's making $21 an hour. We keep in contact. Um, so, and that just was because he had a certain talent that I stopped and congratulated him. So just sure. think, uh, just think about him, him and let's look at some other kids. And even though things change, the technology changes, et cetera, that doesn't preclude someone to even look at making changes later on in life. Eventually, this young man could start his own business. I mean, I'm just using that one example, but there are so many other people who have other talents as well with abilities. And, but if you don't have a plan, if you don't have an idea based on your altitude test and all these other assessments to see where you could fit. Now, you speak about entrepreneurship and creating your own businesses. Obviously, you're a consultant right now with your own business. Uh, you speak about how this uh, child, this boy, uh, this young man could, could eventually create his own business. Baltimore City has a variety of large businesses that have been succeeding. T. Rowe Price, uh, Under Armour, um, they're uh, a former guest on Public Address Podcast, Barcoding Inc., 
there are many businesses that are located in Baltimore City, but at the same time, the city has been challenged with consistent population loss uh, over decades. It was at one point a million people, and now uh, the population is about 650,000 individuals. Maybe more, maybe more, 500 some thousand. It's been dropping even more. So, uh, yeah. and then, and there's also a demographic divide. There are different neighborhoods that are segregated by races. So, I'm wondering if you can speak about, I guess, what, the consistency of the population of Baltimore. Why is it? Is there a demographic divide, geographic, racial correlations? Why is there population loss? And even when you're creating a cleaner, greener Baltimore, a fit Baltimore, you're having these large international corporations grow and succeed. Why do you still have these challenges? How do you account for these, the, the current state demographic profile of the city? Well, it's really simple. People are leaving the city, and that's why Baltimore County now is up to 800,000 people and probably going to be at 900 sooner than later, the way that they're building out. People are leaving the city who have the ability because of education, crime, and taxes. Now we're getting empty nesters that are coming back to the city who are – you know, financially able to afford to live in some of these um, condos that are being developed, but then you still have the the, the lower-income individuals who have the challenges of trying to get out and would love to but can't because of their financial situation. And then you have the people that are committed. You know, I'm a committed person to this city. I could have left. Um, over the last several years, it's it's been very frustrating to see some of the things that I've put in place and then to see it change and spiral down when I know we have the ability to do more and to attract. I mean, some of the, the thriving neighborhoods that we have in the city, I guarantee you, young um, millennials who are moving into certain communities like Canton, Federal Hill, and other areas – when their kids get of a certain age, if you don't have the infrastructure of good middle school and high schools available for them, they're going to go out to the counties. That's why now the counties are, um, are busting out in some of the high schools. So, so there are so so you say the schools, crime, and taxes. One of the hallmarks of your tenure as mayor was a drop in the homicide rate. Uh, you had a crime plan, and you engaged in community policing. Uh, you also cracked down on the trafficking of illegal firearms. Can you speak about what you have done to tackle crime in Baltimore City? Well, I mean, you just spoke about what I uh, did as mayor and um, with going after the most violent offenders, creating the gun registry, using the gun task force, which today it's a whole another issue, um, but also looking at preventive measures. We established um, and built up safe streets in certain communities where ex-offenders or individuals who are part of that culture were able to um, maneuver through situations to calm it down in order for incidents um, of gun violence not to happen because they had their their ears on the ground. They they knew about the culture. They knew what was going on, and they could go in and try to stop it before it got even worse. Um, Going into our prisons before individuals came out, 
here again, helping them to reconnect with their families, looking at resources that will help them to come out and do better with their lives, creating community schools in our schools where we were providing wraparound services, not only for the child but for the family. So it's really taking a holistic approach and what city government not only did alone but with partners throughout the community through working with the University of Maryland School Social Worker um, with a, a program where we were tracking babies before they were born and 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 observing and supporting them and their families while they're in school, um, working with other institutions and foundations to see how we could build on the successes of of the city. You know, programs that are successful because there are you know a thousand different programs in this city. Some of them are good, some of them are uh, mediocre, and some of them are poor. But really, assessing the good ones and partnering with the city because government just can't do it all. And getting into those communities, talking to the residents to look at what their needs are and what we could do based on resources that are currently there to kind of connect those dots in order to take what we had in city government, but also with many of the foundations and other partners, and even in some cases, some of the businesses to support those schools and those communities that were surrounding those areas. Now, six years after you left office as mayor, there were the Freddie Gray riots in the spring of 2016, which was incorporated in the national conversation about a movement called Black Lives Matter. In this movement, uh, individuals argued uh, that there was such a thing as police brutality. Now, you've articulated your support for civilian review boards to review uh, police uh, use of, of uh, force. Um, I'd like to ask, uh, how would you respond to a constituent who was involved in those riots and in the uh, Black Lives Matter movement who says, you know what, maybe this, uh, this interest in increasing funding for the police and having a crime plan and trying to tackle the homicide rate, maybe that led to increased aggression uh, in the police force or too strong of a police force. How do you, res- how do you reconcile your attempts to uh, improve the safety of civilians in Baltimore City, but at the same time make sure that citizens feel safe and protected by uh, those, their police force instead of needing protection from it? Well, number one, we have to make sure that our officers understand and realize that they are there to protect and serve and that they have to be more engaged and involved in those communities that they serve to understand what is happening in those communities to help to build that trust between the police and the citizen. And then secondly, the citizen has to um, have a mechanism outside of just going through internal affairs or the agency that handles complaints from citizens to know that they are going to get responses from um, a organization like a civilian review board who has teeth who can respond in a way independently from the police department investigating on their own officers. And third, you know, the whole culture, the culture and, and mindset where, you know, police officers 
when they see another officer doing something, I mean, they too have the responsibility to speak up. So you have to, you have to make sure you verbally, and you have to use example after example in the police department to show them what's going to be tolerated and not tolerated. And even though our police department wasn't necessarily built up because we've always been somewhat short, we've tried to we try to balance the experienced officers with um, recruiting new officers, but also with making sure that the training of those officers um, is done in a way that they understand their role and responsibility um, with the citizen. Um, because you have to keep in mind, we went through so many types of policing in Baltimore. We went from, when I came on the council under the smoke administration, Frazier made an attempt to do community policing, but that was at the point where we were dealing with the crack cocaine epidemic after, you know, people went from heroin to crack cocaine and things got really crazy and wild. And then we created the power programs um, with federal funds from the um, federal government, but then they took their monies back and wanted local governments to fund it to um, Martin, who, you know, had these numbers in mind and wanted to deal with zero tolerance and take away the quality of life by just locking up people, which was not resolving what we needed to do in Baltimore, to then the crime plan that I put in place, which and I'm not that patting my back myself on the back on this, but it was beginning to really make inroads in ways that we hadn't done in the past. We were working closely with the state's attorney's office where um, well, we were weak with how we wrote reports and what we needed to do, and we would look, and they looked at um, what our police officers needed to do and vice versa. We were beginning to see um, cases that were getting resolved as well as, you know, training our experienced officers and bringing in new officers with this plan and every officer from the bottom up knowing what the strategic plan was, but also dealing with um, systemic issues that affect the community. That's why it's just not one approach. But then having a police commissioner who was grown from the inside as well as he understood that he had to begin to train his people so that if he left, they could over time we began to track to make it more accountable. Well, let's um, transition to something on this topic. You've mentioned your interest in increasing the minimum wage in Baltimore to $15 an hour, your interest in expanding Baltimore City's police force, uh, and your efforts to have done just that while you were mayor. But we've also spoken about individuals leaving Baltimore City and fleeing to Baltimore County. So I'd like to ask, when you've mentioned that taxes is a, are a big problem for Baltimore City residents, and you have individuals leaving the city, you see that you have a diminished tax base. How can you afford a diminished tax base to increase the minimum wage and increase the police force? Well, first of all, I never, I'm not, I wasn't talking about increasing the Baltimore City police force, so mm -hmm. that, I, that's not correct. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Um, 
based on our population and based on per officer, per numbers of individuals who live in the city, we have more than enough, maybe not now, I don't know because I'm not there, mm-hmm. but um, you're correct. But as it relates to um, um, $15, we found um, money within city government based on looking at the budgets that we could have done it for city employees. And we were going to use that model to then encourage the private sector to do. Um, I mean, it's all about priorities. You know, it's it's about priorities, and it's about how to maximize what you've given, what you've been given, and how you can utilize that. I mean, keep in mind, I came in city government during a recession, and during that time, we got extremely creative in doing actually more with less because we tracked through city stat and other mechanisms with our agencies um, where money was going, where money was being wasted. So we were doing even self-audits um, for our agencies and departments so that we could do everything that I was attempting to do through cleaner, greener, healthier, safer. Um, so so it's all in understanding and how you're going to manage um, what you're given. So but we, it, it's, a, it's a challenge. People, There's a big demand, and people don't understand that the, 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 the basis of our support for running city government is the, is the property tax. And when that diminishes and you rely heavily on state and federal money and resources, those don't last forever. And so that's where you have to become creative. So as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. I'd like to ask about your motivations to have engaged in public service and also what you hope will have been the impact of your years in public service. You've you've been able to promulgate uh, single-stream recycling regulations. You have introduced Operation Orange Cone to uh, improve the infrastructure in the city. As you mentioned, you've engaged in cleaner, greener, fitter, healthier, safer Baltimore. Um, You've addressed urban blight, uh, vacant properties, homelessness, population loss, police uh, policing. So many things uh, have can be attributed to some extent to your record. Why have you been uh, how, motivated to to improve the city uh, for all the, all of its residents? And what do you hope will be the impact or your legacy of your work in public service? Well. Having one a great team of people who worked with me, um, but also understanding and realizing that if we don't create systems that no matter who's in public office, if it's working, that you build on it. You look at its strengths and its weaknesses and you build on it because ultimately who's ever there is going to ultimately get credit for that. But when we see something's working and because this individual put it in place, we eliminated, it really helps, it it takes us backwards versus forward. And so it's my hope that as we move forward in this city that the leaders at B will assess some of the positive things that have happened um, during my tenure as mayor 
that will now hopefully uh, be revitalized to um, take us back on to the right track that personally I'm not seeing happen, but I would hope that despite um, the politics that we tend to play um, in this city, which somewhat weakens us, that we can look at the broader and bigger picture. And so um, I'm reminded every day when I run into people who know my love and my passion and my drive for this city and my commitment for excellence for everyone in the city, that that energy and that source of, of vibe that I try to um, connect to individuals will help in moving the city forward. So hopefully and that has been Sheila Dixon, the 48th mayor of Baltimore City and the former president of the city council, as well as a former representative from the 4th district on the city council, who speaks about her work uh, in many different areas of Baltimore City. Um, she says individuals have left the city because of education, crime, and taxes, and she's worked on all three of those issues, whether to create more opportunities and plans for individual students or to create a strategic plan for the entire city as it tackles a homicide rate, tries to attract new businesses with economic development, uh, and at the same time uh, tries to improve city, uh, city services for those who are committed to staying in the city. Uh, many challenges, of course, uh, in running any large metropolitan area in the United States, and Sheila is a veteran uh, who has um, so much to share and potentially much to offer in the future. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.